0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Sundown comes late in a Manitoba summer. Late and slow. On a clear July evening in the southern farms, you can head outside at quarter to ten and watch for an hour as the sun slowly sinks into the prairie. When twilight falls, when the color of the sky shifts from wheat to rust to blackberry, and the shadows creep along the dirt road and the porch lights switch on, you can almost hear the land heave a heavy sigh as 16 hours of hard daylight and harder work come to an end. The world grows still and quiet except for the thousand little things moving unseen in the darkness. The chirping crickets in their fields, the staccato spray of the sprinklers, the soft buzzing of the power lines are the few signs of life in a land that seems empty and asleep beneath the starlight. Because few people go there. Few have ever dipped below Highway 1 to visit places like the Pembina Valley or its towns like Carmen, Miami, Darlingford, and Plum Coulee. Few have had reason to even hear those names, or find them amidst the patchwork of green and brown fields that extends from the lights of Winnipeg to the U.S. border. But that all changed in the spring of 1975, when a visitor of a different kind came bounding into the sky of southern Manitoba. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, the story of a UFO that captured the hearts and minds of many Manitobans through a series of repeat visits that lasted for over a year. We'll hear the accounts, recap the history, explore the mysteries, and see what this strange event can teach us about our culture, our media, and our sense of community. This is the legend of Charlie Red Star, Manitoba's friendly UFO. Part 1: The red light in the sky. It would begin shortly after nightfall. One by one, the stars would appear, and almost in answer, a light would rise over the horizon. Another star, another light, and then another and another, until there was a steady stream of headlights moving down the highway. From the north through Elm Creek and Barnsley, and the east through Brunkild and Sperling, into the town of Carmen. There were no common characteristics amongst them, aside from curiosity. There were families in station wagons and vans, their kids grinning out the back windows from atop a pile of blankets, Couples, young and old, sipping from thermoses full of black coffee. High schoolers with six packs of beer kicking the tires of their beat-up trucks. And college kids from Brandon and Winnipeg, with nothing else to do but drive around, so they might as well drive there. All of them would cruise through the streets of Carmen, past the domed clock tower of the library, past the darkened sign of Sills Drive-In, leaning over the steering wheel or out the open window, watching the sky. They would push blindly into the night, faithfully following the others who they hoped would know the way to Friendship Field, a privately owned airport and landing strip where many were said to gather for the late night light show. Some would make it, others would get lost or go their own way and finally gather along the dirt roads at the outskirts of town, tilt their heads back and look up. They were a congregation of the curious, awaiting whatever revelation might appear to them from the starry sky above. They would wait, and wait, and wait, until impatience and fatigue wore them down. Until the kids began to toss and turn, until the coffee went cold, the beer was gone, and the notion of grabbing a late-night slice of pizza back in Winnipeg sounded far more gratifying than all that nothing out there. By midnight, many would leave out of boredom or frustration, and as the minutes ticked by, those who remained would start to feel foolish for wasting their night chasing a silly rumor. And then, just as the stragglers were about to give up, it would happen. First, a white flash would light up the night for an instant, and then Charlie would appear. A brilliant white ball of light would fly in from the west and turn a pulsing red as it drew closer, bobbing and weaving low in the sky across the fields and over the road. Charlie was the name they gave him, certainly a him rather than an it. This was no nameless UFO. He was too plainful to be an object, too much of a character to be unidentified, and the adjective of flying was simply a matter of fact. Seeing was believing. There would be excited cheers and chatter in the crowd, camera clicks and desperate cries from children, I can't see it! Where is it? As they would watch the light silently soar just a few hundred feet above their heads, then turn and dash down the road or duck behind a building, all while bouncing through the air like a giant bright red beach ball. For some, that brief sighting would be enough. But for others, it was just the beginning. With the growl of an engine, the spinning of tires and the spitting of gravel, some would give chase and race into the night, hoping for a closer look. Charlie's response to all this attention would vary. Sometimes he would shoot straight up into the sky and vanish in the blink of an eye, or flare up and shift hues from red to bright orange and suddenly disappear. Other times he would react to the cars and dash up or away, or playfully vanish and reappear behind his pursuers, then chase them down the road. He would sometimes even veer off and land in a distant field, inaccessible by road. If, however, he was left alone and merely observed, he would continue his strange, bouncing journey into Carmen or one of the nearby communities and then either blast off and fade into the stratosphere, or simply fizzle out. This was an almost nightly routine for Charlie, who, according to local legend, was witnessed by thousands of people between the spring of 1975 and the winter of 1976. The number of reports peaked that first summer, after a film crew from Winnipeg's CKY-TV captured footage of the mysterious red light. The grainy film would become one of the most important videos of an unidentified flying object at the time, and would serve as the catalyst for many Manitobans who ventured into the valley after dark and, according to the stories, caused a series of traffic jams on otherwise quiet rural roads. There's a term used by UFO and UAP researchers to define a prolonged series of sightings. They call it a flap. Boasting months of reported sightings by dozens of credible eyewitnesses, from seasoned pilots and aircraft mechanics, to RCMP officers, to -to down-to-earth farmers, the Charlie Red Star flap was, at the time, one of the biggest to have ever occurred. Now, that fact alone is interesting. It's the reason why the phenomenon is mentioned every now and then in the media when they're conducting a sort of UFO retrospective. It's also why there's an entire book on the subject, written by Canadian UFO researcher Grant Cameron, who was one of those young college kids looking for Charlie on a dirt road outside of Carmen back in 1975. Some podcasts and articles have touched on the topic further, poring over the few existing accounts in an attempt to discern the nature of the thing. But that's not what really interests me. What I like most about Charlie Redstar is the folklore the personal stories and experiences shared by the people who witnessed it, and the unusual if not unique detail that this unidentified aerial phenomenon was personified by its witnesses, referenced in a casual and friendly way, and given a name. You just don't see that with a lot of UFO sightings. There's also the fact that, despite all of the stories and the charming moniker given to the phenomenon, Charlie Redstar remains relatively obscure, Even at the height of the event, media coverage was sparse in Manitoba and almost non-existent throughout the rest of the country. And I think looking at those three things, the stories of eyewitnesses and the treatment of the phenomenon by both the locals and the media, can tell us a lot about Canadian culture in general and at the time that Charlie took to the skies. So let's start with the stories, to get a sense of how this strange ball of red light affected those who saw it and learn more about how the legend of Charlie Redstar first began. Part 2. It wasn't a plane. It was the early morning of April 10th, 1975, in Stephenfield, Manitoba. A 14-year-old girl lay sleeping on her living room couch, her face washed in the light and noise of the salt-and-pepper static that poured from an old black-and-white television. The white light reflected off the window behind her and deepened the shadows of the open drapes that hung at its sides. At approximately 2 a.m., a new sound joined the hiss of the static, what she would later describe as a whizzing sound, fast, steady, and shrill, and loud enough to wake the entire house. She opened her eyes to find that the room was filled with an eerie glow and the walls were shaking as a massive red ball of light moved south over their house past the window and set down in the pasture. This thing, whatever it was, had set fire to the house, she thought. The pulsing light that surrounded her was the color of flame. She ran to her mother's bedroom and banged on the door, and they went together to the living room window. Whatever the girl had seen in the pasture had moved on, and the living room was now back to normal. There was no fire, thankfully, though a red-orange glow was now blazing behind the hills to the southwest of their home. It looked as though the rising sun had gotten tangled up in the evergreens. There was a red glow over the treetops, spanning roughly 50 to 100 meters across the horizon. The mother grabbed a pair of binoculars from a nearby drawer and peered through. Though most of the light was obscured by the trees, she later told the RCMP that she could see flashes of reddish-orange and bluish-green light. The mother and daughter stood transfixed at the window for over half an hour before closing the drapes and returning to bed, the faint red glow still seeping in through the cracks in the window dressing. When they woke in the morning, whatever they had seen was gone. The girl ran outside and examined the pasture, confident that the object had landed there, that there'd be some sort of evidence, some track or trace of what she had seen, but there was nothing. What's more, she insisted that she had heard it leave around 4.30 in the morning, flying back over their house and making a strange high-pitched whine. According to one researcher who spoke to the family, the teen was so terrified by what she had experienced that she spent the next three weeks sleeping on an air mattress in the hall outside her mother's door, well away from any windows. What was it that flew so low over the house, the mother estimated a mere 50 feet, on that cool spring night? What could burn so brightly in the Manitoba countryside that it could look like the sun was coming up in the southwest? It sounded like a dream or an hallucination, the product of a mind that was still half-asleep, but they had both seen something. And then they learned that they were not alone in their experience. Others had seen it too. Just after nine in the evening, on the same day that the girl and mother had seen the strange red light out their window, Bob and Elaine Demert were walking down the road near their home and doing a bit of stargazing. It was a lovely, clear night, and Bob remarked about how brightly Venus was shining in the west. Elaine gazed at the distant planet, shining brighter than all the other stars in the sky. But then something else caught her attention. A red light was coming toward them, moving just 300 feet above the ground, over a line of trees roughly 4 kilometers away. Bob saw it too, and commented that it was flying awfully low for an aircraft he knew from experience, Bob was a pilot and aircraft mechanic and made it his hobby to fix up old planes. Together, the Diemerts owned Friendship Field, the small private airport just south of Carmen. At first, Bob thought it might be a helicopter coming east from the nearby town of Portage La Prairie, as it was too low and too slow to be an aircraft, but it was exceptionally bright. Brighter, it seemed, than the planet Venus, which still glowed on the horizon. It also lacked the green and white lights one would normally expect to see on a helicopter. It was, instead, a sort of blood red with a neon glow around it. The shape was wrong, too. It was hard to gauge the distance and size, but it looked more like an aircraft pointed sideways with its wing-leading edge coming toward them. As it drew closer, the Demerts stopped and listened for the whine of an engine or the chopping sound of rotor blades, but it was completely silent. They watched the mysterious craft for five to seven minutes as it followed the highway to the town limits and vanished behind a clump of trees. The Demerts were shocked by what they saw. This craft, maybe 50 feet in length, flew incredibly low, made no noise, and despite its eerie red glow, didn't seem to have any noticeable lights. It didn't turn or bank like conventional aircraft, but simply veered off and vanished as quickly as it arrived. Though they initially considered jumping in the car and following the thing, they reasoned that once they arrived at the north end of town, the UFO would be long gone. In the coming days, they learned that their neighbor across the street had seen it too, a flashing red light which she assumed was just another aircraft on its way to Friendship Field. The Demerts called the RCMP, and presumably the local media, to report their strange sighting. On April 14, 1975, the same day that Bob gave his statement to a local constable, the Winnipeg Free Press declared, quote, Man claims UFO sighting, end quote. Whether they learned of the sighting through the media or simply heard the story from their neighbors, the mother and daughter from Stephenfield must have been emboldened by the news and would give their own statements to the RCMP the following day. All of these details have been assembled from the stories, interviews, and articles that have been published throughout the years, along with the now-declassified statements which were recorded by the RCMP and forwarded to the Astrophysics Branch at the National Research Council in Ottawa, Ontario. The detachment commander who sent the letter made a point of commenting, The witnesses in these sightings are all considered reliable persons. Demert is an expert in his field. There are a few discrepancies here and there, the most glaring being the mother disagreed with her daughter, stating that their experience took place exactly two weeks earlier on March 27th rather than April 10th. But regardless, this string of sightings are some of the earliest on record of the phenomenon that would eventually be known as Charlie Red Star. Other sightings soon followed. Sometime around midnight on May 4th, a group of four people saw what the reporting officer described as quote, either a UFO or meteor, end quote, in Haywood, a community a short drive north of Carmen. The event began when one of the witnesses pointed out a strange star in the sky that seemed out of place. It was bigger and brighter than the North Star and glowed a dull red. Suddenly, a flash of what was described as red lightning appeared to strike the star, and it shot away in an instant, first veering south, and then north. It was a ball of fire, they said, as big as a house, and reminiscent of burning molten metal. They watched the light for several minutes before it burned out or crashed somewhere near Lake Manitoba. Three nights later, on May 7th, the mysterious red light was back near Friendship Field, where it was witnessed once again by Bob and Elaine Demert, along with three of their friends. It returned the next night, and the night after that, when it was observed by Constable Ian Nicholson of the RCMP. Nicholson described a strange and confusing sight. The UFO was, quote, an oval-shaped red light with an X-shaped background. The X-shaped light was white in color and not attached to the oval shape, end quote. He reported that he chased the silent light westbound down Highway 245 for nearly 20 kilometers until he lost sight of it behind the trees. It wasn't a plane or any commercial aircraft, he told the press. I didn't get a real good look at it to specifically describe it, but I would have to assume it was a UFO. Nicholson radioed the Portage La Prairie Rural Detachment and told them to keep an eye on the sky, but they never saw a thing. This kind of activity continued almost every night throughout the summer. By mid-July, the Brandon Sun reported that Carmen RCMP had received no less than 40 to 50 reports of UFOs, more than one sighting every other day. At least two videos of Charlie were captured just outside of town. Perhaps the most intriguing of the two, taken by Winnipeg news photographer Alan Kerr, shows a bright oval light in the sky that zips up, hooks left, and hovers for a moment at center frame, before a bright red flash lights up the sky and the object jumps to the top of the frame in less than a second. UFO researcher Bob Berry estimated that, to make that sudden jump, Charlie would have had to be traveling over 30,000 miles per hour. The sightings weren't just in Carmen. Charlie rolled across the prairies like a pinball. It might have been he who lit up the skies of eastern Saskatchewan and left 40-foot scorch marks in the fields. A UFO matching his description and behavior was spotted low on the horizon in Oker River, Manitoba, Stephen Field, and twice in Boisevain. Several people saw strange red lights over Brandon and Rivers, and daylight sightings of a bell-shaped object were reported at Elm Creek, Holland, and Morden. Though mostly a solitary figure, it seems that sometimes Charlie may have come with friends. The entire town of Dauphin, including two police officers, watched dumbfounded for ten minutes straight as two mysterious lights slowly and silently flew over their town before fading in the southeast. Two miles west of Notre-Dame-de-Lourdes, three bright red, round disks were spotted flying fast and low on the horizon, just above the treetops. Similar reports were made south of the border as well, mainly in North Dakota and Minnesota. Sightings remained consistent even in the fall, when the colder weather chased many Manitobans indoors. One of the last compelling sightings of the year occurred around 10 p.m. on Tuesday, October 28th, when 59-year-old Claire Outhwaite and 62-year-old Merle Plowman were driving home to Carberry, Manitoba after a night of bingo in Glenboro. As they headed north, a red light appeared on the western horizon and slowly drifted toward them it had the shape of a glowing, inverted bull. It coasted smoothly over the treetops that bordered the highway and easily kept pace with the car. The ladies were spooked. Claire told the Brandon son, Every time it came closer, Merle would say, Go faster, it's coming closer! The object was so distressing, she said, that she sped down the highway as fast as she could, reaching speeds of up to 130 kilometers per hour. Yet no matter how fast they were going, the red light stayed in pursuit, glowing so intensely that it lit up the vehicle's interior. No sound was heard and no heat was felt, but the women were terrified that the flying object would, quote, land on us and burn us up, end quote. They told reporters that the UFO stayed with them until they reached the outskirts of Carberry, then veered off to the west and disappeared. Neither Merle nor Claire were familiar with the regular UFO reports that were coming in from Carmen, and didn't bother calling the police, thinking that no one would believe them. It was also hard to talk about. Merle was apparently so frightened by the experience that she didn't even want to discuss it with the press, saying, quote, "How can you ever deal with something you don't know anything about?" End quote?" She had a good point. How can any of us be expected to comprehend the incomprehensible or explain the unexplainable? How can we overcome our fear and make sense of something that seems to defy the laws of physics and that challenges our perceptions? These are rhetorical questions, really, but as the people of Carmen have taught us, there is one thing that we can do to help reduce our fears and accept something that we can't quite explain. We can name it. Part 3 They Called Him Charlie While researching this episode, I found that many people, mostly Americans, who have covered this story in the past have been perplexed by the name Charlie Redstar. Why, they ask, would a UFO be personified in such a way and given a name? They wonder if it was some sort of reference, maybe a character from pop culture, or local slang, or an inside joke of some kind. But I have a feeling that, for many Canadians, that kind of question wouldn't even enter our minds, and that perhaps the best answer to the question, why Charlie, is simply, why not? Canadian culture is hard to define. We're a relatively small, diverse group of people spread out across a vast distance, and a sense of a national identity doesn't come as easy as identifying with one's town, region, or province. But I think one characteristic that is commonplace amongst many Canadians is that we don't take ourselves, or anything else, too seriously. That attitude is often expressed in the names that we give to things. In 2016, when the city of Halifax went to the public to find a name for their new harbor ferry, popular choices included Donair Yeah Boy! complete with exclamation mark, and Tuxedo Stan, an homage to a black and white cat who ran for mayor of the city in 2012. In 2003, the University of Toronto's Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics reportedly procured one of the fastest computers in the world at a whopping price of over $900,000. The remarkable machine, used to simulate supermassive black holes and collisions of galaxies, was nicknamed Mackenzie in honor of the two lovable, beer guzzling Canadian brothers created by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas on the show SCTV. The supercomputer's two masternodes were named, of course, Bob and Doug. And in 1996, when politicians were looking to change the name of the Northwest Territories, they asked their constituents to suggest and vote on a list of names. Most people voted to simply keep the name as is, but the runner-up, the most popular name, was as simple as it was elegant. If those voters had their way, the Northwest Territories would be known today as Bob. With all of this in mind, The idea of naming a UFO, Charlie, doesn't seem all that strange, especially when you consider the fact that he was regularly appearing in the same area night after night, eventually becoming a familiar sight. Manitoba is a friendly place, they even say so on their license plates, and if you become a regular, if you come around often enough and don't give your name, well, folks might just pick a name for you. No one knows how or why the name was chosen, it just was. The ball of light became as familiar as a person's face, and for many, a welcome recurring sight. He was red, he glowed like a star, and he seemed friendly enough, so he became Charlie Red Star. That sense of familiarity made it easier to talk about, and could make people more secure in what they saw. Quite often, listening to someone recount their UFO sighting can feel a lot like listening to someone talk about a dream. It's often a fleeting, solitary, and very personal experience that includes a lot of imagery that doesn't make a lot of sense. But Charlie was different. To see him was to take part in a common, often communal experience— In the summer of 1975, chances were good that you could drive to Carmen around midnight and find other people just like you. You could join them, look up, and see something amazing, yet expected, anticipated. And you would know that there were others, tens, dozens, maybe even hundreds of people, who were seeing it too. Really, he was hard to miss. Almost without fail, Charlie would fly through the air, low and slow, bouncing up and down, wobbling and pulsing like a giant heart in the sky. Sometimes he would hang out near the radio or water towers, but most often he would lazily bob his way into the valley from the hills in the northwest, fly past Friendship Field, and head up the road to the other end of town. After a short delay, he would often head back to the place where he started. It was a journey that locals would call Charlie's Beer Run. If Charlie was out grabbing some beer, he seemed most thirsty and most active between April and July of 1975. That was the time when most people went out of their way to see him, and the resulting eyewitness accounts made it easy for reporters and researchers to piece together a basic description of the UFO. Details varied from story to story, of course, but Charlie consistently appeared as a bell-shaped object that glowed white or bright orange when far away, but turned a deeper red, similar to a stoplight, when viewed more closely. He would typically move very slowly for a flying object, between 20 and 100 kilometers per hour, and stay below 1,000 feet, often just above the treeline at a height too dangerous for conventional aircraft. If you were lucky enough to get very close, you might see windows and alternating colors of red, white, blue, or green. Comparisons to, quote, a Ferris wheel with lights all around, end quote, were common. Charlie seemed to move and hover at a 45-degree angle, but size was harder to pin down. Southern Manitoba is notoriously flat, and the countryside didn't have a lot of landmarks to help witnesses gauge size and distance. In the stories, Charlie varies in size from as big as a car to as big as a house or even a barn. There were also reports of what came to be known as Little Charlie, one or more diminutive lights said to range between two and five feet in length that would fly over people's heads or sit blinking and twinkling at the end of dark country roads, luring and confusing investigators. Though their appearances were surprising, they didn't seem threatening. Sure, they might have chased a car every now and then, but the cars chased them too. And at times, it often felt like a game. Many people who spoke of Charlie and Little Charlie felt that the UFOs had a playful or even a mischievous personality, almost like a puppy. In fact, one man, known only as John, who worked as a custodian at the University of Manitoba, shared his personal experience of playing a kind of cat-and-mouse game with Little Charlie one summer night in 1976. The story was so compelling that celebrated Canadian folklorist Edith Fouke chose to include it in her book, Tales Told in Canada. It was printed alongside personal narratives of Sasquatch encounters, the Frank Slide disaster, and memories of the First World War. John was likely a regular visitor to Carmen and well acquainted with Charlie, as his story begins with him and his friends finding little Charlie, quote, at his regular spot, end quote. Safely inside their car, the group approached the UFO with their headlights switched off, then sat and stared at the strange ball of light as it hovered in place, changing color, size, and shape. Eventually, they grew impatient and used their flashlights and headlights in an attempt to provoke or communicate with the object, but to no effect. After 30 minutes, however, the object flared up, transformed into a shape reminiscent of a domed saucer, and moved away. The group pursued the object and tracked it to a deserted dirt road, when, according to the story, it suddenly flared up behind them and chased them down the road for mile after mile. But John wasn't worried. This wasn't his first encounter with Little Charlie. He ends his story somewhat cryptically, saying, quote, At the two farms one mile up the road, I turned west, as Little Charlie never follows us any further than that, end quote. Now this experience mirrors that of UFO researcher Grant Cameron, who had a similar encounter with two Little Charlies just a few months prior. According to writer Chris Rutowski, Cameron and a friend were staking out a UFO hunting spot near the town of Sperling, just east of Carmen, when they spotted an orange ball of light perched on the edge of a small bridge. They got out of their car and approached the light on foot. When they were within 100 feet of the bridge, Cameron casually looked back, only to see a second orange ball sitting on top of their car. They turned around and sprinted back, hoping they could catch it. As they ran, they looked over their shoulder to check on the light at the bridge, but saw it had disappeared. When they turned back to the car, they saw that the light on the roof was now drifting down the road, where it ultimately winked out of sight. Shaken by the experience, Cameron and his friend were certain that they had interacted with some sort of intelligence. It's clear by now that people in southern Manitoba were seeing something incredible in the sky, something that, for some was life-changing. Many of the more spectacular reports sound as if they're describing the awe-inspiring spacecrafts from Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yet that movie came out in 1977, two years after Charlie appeared. We don't know exactly how many people saw Charlie, but we know that certain individuals saw him bouncing through the air over 100 times. And the legends tell us the number of total witnesses that first summer range in the hundreds, if not the thousands. The sum of all of these stories, descriptions, and reports covering a span of 16 to 18 months is nothing short of remarkable. And yet, even today, few people have ever heard about the Manitoba flap of 1975 or the name Charlie Red Star. But why? Why? Part 4. Cults, Kidnappings, and Religious Revivals 1975 was a weird time for UFOs. Respected ufologists like Dr. J. Allen Hynek, advisor on Project Blue Book, and developer of the Close Encounter classification system, were publicly clashing with other researchers like Philip Klass, whose newly published book, UFOs Explained, declared quite matter-of-factly that all UFOs had completely natural explanations, and anyone who said otherwise were frauds, hoaxters, or hacks a documentary titled The Outer Space Connection debuted in theaters across North America and was the last in a trilogy focused on the ancient astronauts' theory. One of the biggest stories concerning UFOs that year was the disappearance of 20 people in Oregon, who were reportedly convinced by a mysterious couple known only as The Two to give up all of their personal relationships and possessions and join 80 others in a secret camp in Colorado. There, they would live only on fruit and undergo emotional and mental training to prepare for the arrival of an extraterrestrial spaceship that would whisk them away to paradise. The charismatic leaders quoted the Bible, claimed they were messengers from God, and insisted that Christ, Ezekiel, and other biblical figures left the earth by way of UFOs. The newly formed group, which some newspapers described as a space cult, called themselves the Human Individual Metamorphosis. 22 years later, in 1997, they would make headlines again under their new name, Heaven's Gate, when the group committed mass suicide in Santa Fe, California. 1975 was also the year that Arizona logger Travis Walton claimed he was struck by a ray of light from an unidentified flying object and abducted by extraterrestrials, finally returning to Earth five days later. His story was popularized in the 1993 film Fire in the Sky. According to UFO researcher Grant Cameron, 1975 was also the peak of so-called cattle mutilations, a phenomenon often associated with UFOs. Yet, for the most part, the Charlie Red Star flap had none of that. There wasn't a lot of bickering or theorizing about what Charlie might be. Sure, some people claimed that Charlie was simply a planet or a plane, while others maintained that he was angelic, or demonic, or an alien from another planet. But according to Cameron, most people in Carmen didn't really care to theorize. They saw what they saw, take it or leave it. There didn't seem to be much reason for speculation. There were no reports of abductions, visitations, men in black, or mutilations. Just one or more lights in the sky, going on a beer run. And it seems that there wasn't much patience for religious interpretations, either. In the middle of June, at the height of the Charlie Red Star flap, roughly 1,200 people, deemed the UFO faithful by some papers, gathered in the town of Steinbach, Manitoba, about 100 kilometers east of Carmen to attend a three-day conference that reportedly attempted to blend UFOs with biblical scripture. The organizers declared that Manitoba and Ontario were, quote, in the midst of a tremendous UFO wave, end quote, and that they had picked Steinbach due to its large population of devout Mennonites. Though the newspapers declared that, quote, hotels were jammed, restaurants were bustling, and the conference organizers were predicting a sellout crowd, end quote, it seems that many attendees were less than thrilled with what they perceived as an attempted religious revival. According to the local papers, many expressed dissatisfaction with the religious overtones and simply wanted to hear about UFOs, minus all the gospel. As one individual told the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, quote, He hurt the final outcome by incorporating two good things, religion and a UFO conference. End quote. In my experience, rural Manitobans tend to be pretty chill, practical, down-to-earth and friendly people. The kind of folks who would rather avoid the potential fame and ridicule that might come with a highly publicized UFO sighting. So it could be that many who witnessed Charlie Redstar simply didn't want to engage in these kinds of conversations and risk being associated with pseudoscience, cultists, or spotlight chasers, or seen as people who might mistake the planet Jupiter for a spaceship from another world. They were totally justified in feeling this way because that is how some in the media betrayed them. In July of 1975, a Carmen woman snapped four photos of what she believed was Charlie from her kitchen window. The pictures confounded Winnipeg planetarium director and expert telescope designer Franklin Shin, who commented that he first thought she had photographed the planet Jupiter until he realized that the object was much too large to be a planet. The evidence was soon sent to the National Research Council for analysis by Dr. Ian Halliday of the Planetary Sciences section. The doctor's opinion differed from that of Franklin Shin. In his statement, he said, quote, There can be little doubt about it. We got the report from the RCMP and we saw the photographs. The sightings were at the right time and in the right part of the sky to be consistent with the planet Jupiter, end quote. Though Dr. Halliday was only speaking about this one set of photographs, many newspapers across the prairies used the explanation to declare that every single UFO spotted that summer was nothing more than a case of mistaken identity, of silly country folk with overactive imaginations being spooked by a planet in our own solar system. After that, the big story wasn't that there were lights in the sky— The big story was that there were people who saw lights in the sky. It's a subtle but important distinction. According to some witnesses, the camera crews that were dispatched to Carmen were not really interested in capturing footage of a UFO. They weren't looking for evidence, they were looking for news, and they were far more focused on the witnesses themselves. According to an interview with Bob Demert, owner of Friendship Field Airport, he was with a crew from CBC TV one night, when Charlie appeared out of a fog bank. He was excited that finally someone in the media might be able to document the phenomenon, but none of them seemed interested in chasing Charlie or capturing him on film. Instead, quote, They were interested in taking pictures of us watching the thing, end quote. A professional photographer and Charlie chaser supposedly had similar frustrations with a CBC cameraman. According to Grant Cameron's book, Charlie Red Star, the photographer was at Bob Demert's airport and had just spotted Charlie when the cameraman from the CBC put his spotlight on her, presumably hoping for some good footage of her reacting to the UFO. The spotlight was so blinding that she lost track of her target and gave up. He turned off his spotlight, she got her vision back, located her target, and bam, the spotlight comes on again. This apparently happened three times before she threatened to knock that stupid spotlight right out of his hands. He argued with her, saying that he only wanted news. If that were the case, one wonders why he didn't simply point his camera at the sky. Cameron wrote about another incident involving a CBC reporter and a family he called the McCanns. One day, in November of 1975, the ranching family discovered that 32 out of 200 registered horses had gone missing. The RCMP investigated, but found that there was no evidence of theft. No tire tracks, footprints, or broken fences. The horses had simply vanished. The McCanns had gained a reputation in the area after speaking to the National Enquirer about several UFO encounters they experienced on and around their property, and it seems that the CBC reporter assigned to report on the missing horses was a bit pushy in his attempt to get Joseph McCann to blame the missing animals on the mysterious UFOs. Joseph complained to Cameron, quote, The interviewer at CBC wanted me to say that the UFOs had stolen my horses, but I never said it. I said that they were missing. They taped that section three times, but I wouldn't say it, end quote. Though Joseph wouldn't say the words, the family's previous publicity was enough. When Grant Cameron asked one of their neighbors about whether he had ever seen a UFO, the man replied, quote, You don't talk about things like that in town. People call you cuckoo. They'll call us another bunch of McCanns, end quote. That kind of attention, and the threat of that kind of stigma, can be overwhelming, and a good reason for people to keep their stories and their evidence to themselves. According to Burt McKay of the Brandon Sun, a newspaper editor of Rivers Manitoba was called out by both police officers and citizens at 4.30 in the morning to witness and record strange lights in the sky. He reportedly captured several compelling photos, but when the phones rang, the networks came calling, and others urged him to do an interview, it was all too much. According to McKay, quote, he went into hiding and put a torch to his pictures, end quote. It seems that, despite the fact that the Charlie Red Star flap was remarkable and intriguing and witnessed by hundreds if not thousands of people, A combination of a remote location, low media attention, scant evidence, over-eager debunking, and a fear of social stigma kept this particular UFO story from really blasting off. But that doesn't change the fact that people saw something. So what did they see? Part 5. Defining Charlie Dr. Halliday was probably right in his assessment that the photos he received were of the planet Jupiter. But what about the rest of the sightings? What about the videos, the other photographs, and the reports from all across southern Manitoba? UFO researcher and author Chris Rutowski wrote about how he had the chance to review a notebook kept by a woman who had recorded over 200 personal sightings of Charlie Red Star. He wrote, quote, Upon my investigation, it was immediately obvious that most of her observations were not only of satellites, but of airplanes, car headlights, and the moon. However, a quick perusal of her notebook showed that a few of her sightings were truly anomalous. And it is precisely those few that we must strive for when encountering such witnesses, quote. A few out of 200. Those odds sound about right. It's likely that the vast majority of Charlie sightings were of a planet, a meteor, a plane, a car, or other completely pedestrian things. Some theories suggest more mysterious, but still earthly phenomena, like ball lightning or swamp gas. But planets don't usually chase old ladies down the highway, meteors don't suddenly change direction or stop in mid-air and hover, and the moon doesn't typically buzz over houses, wake teenagers, and land in fields. Grant Cameron and Bob and Elaine Demert seem pretty convinced that Charlie was some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence. And the most popular theory was that he was investigating America's installation of 400 nuclear missiles just behind the border, about 130 kilometers south of Carmen. The installation began in early 1975, around the same time Charlie showed up. And when the plan was scrapped and the missiles were taken away in early 1976, Charlie vanished soon after, and as far as we know, never returned. Of course, if all that's true, Charlie could also have been some sort of advanced reconnaissance drone or vessel from a rival nation. But alien or not, it's hard to imagine someone going on an important spy operation and then still taking time to mess with the locals. Maybe he decided to grab a Molson each night after the job was done. In the end, it might be best to take some inspiration from the folks in Carmen and not overthink it. Just let it be. As Constable Nicholson explained about his own sighting back in 1975, quote, I don't get overly excited about them. I don't try and figure out where they come from or what they are. I'm just relating what I saw myself, end quote. So, in honour of the people who helped make Charlie Redstar a charming and captivating bit of Canadian folklore, let's end with the simple facts. There was a strange red light in the sky. His name was Charlie. And for many, that was good enough. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, next time you see a strange light in the sky, raise a glass to Charlie Redstar and wish him well on his beer run. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordoth heath Rollins is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.